Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would come now and meet with us in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give hope to weary hearts. And we pray, Lord, that even if circumstances don't change and even if emotions don't rise, you would make us those who show how good we believe you to be through our faith and through our persistence. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be people who are wise enough to understand that good theology doesn't necessarily change circumstances and that right hopes don't always result in uplifted hearts. So, Lord, we ask for eyes to see and ears to hear, and we pray for hearts to feel what the psalmist has expressed. We pray, Father, that you would meet us and make us more than we are. Make us godly. Make us Christ-like. We ask that you do it in Jesus' name and for your everlasting glory. Amen. We've come in our study of Psalms to the end of what is sometimes referred to as book one in the Psalms. So I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 42. And you'll notice that above Psalm 42, there's this big label that says book two. And so Psalms 1 through 41 are are the first section of the Psalms, and there are going to be five of these. And we are now entering into the second, second book of the Psalter. And it's it's interesting just to observe some features of this change from book one into book two. For one thing, there were only only three psalms in the first 41 that didn't have David's name in the superscription, you know, like a a psalm of David. Uh, Only psalms 1 and 2 and 33 lacked that. The other 38 psalms of the first 41 all had that. Well, Book 2 opens, and we're going to have a series of psalms that are uh, psalms of the sons of Korah. In fact, 42 through 49 are all psalms of the sons of Korah. The only one that doesn't have one of these titles is Psalm 43. And, And there's just nothing on Psalm 43. And interestingly, just as Psalms 1 and 2 are kind of a a unit that, that open the Psalter, so also Psalms 42 and 43, two a two Psalm pair or a unit that opened this second section of the Psalter. One other observation I'll make about about this is, you know, as we've read the Psalms to this point, we've we've noticed a lot of instances of the name of the Lord, and and the Lord is printed L-O-R-D, and the R is a, a, a small cap, and the D is a small cap. You know, it's a capital letter, but it's squashed. Well, that's going to be a lot less frequent here at the outset of book two. In fact, you get it in verse nine, you get the Lord's name, I'm sorry, it's verse 8 of chapter 42. And then you're not going to see it again until chapter 46. So it's interesting that all of a sudden the psalmists start referring to God as God instead of as Yahweh or Lord. Uh, These first two psalms are psalms of a man who is suffering. 
We don't know who the, altar, who the author was. Um, it, this is a, these are this, Psalms 42 and 43. It's a, uh, Psalms of the sons of Korah. We don't know who he was, but we can, we can see some things about his situation. Look at, look at chapter 42, verse 6. He's going to say here, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. That appears to be where he is. And where he wants to be is in Jerusalem. So he's, he's, he's far away from where he wants to be, physically separated from access to God in the temple. We might say he's exiled. And then, I don't mean literally exiled, you know, 586 B.C. I just mean he's away from God's presence. And then look at the end of verse 3. Somebody is taunting him with the words, Where is your God? And then that's again at the end of verse 10. Where is your God? So these enemies are around this guy. He's away from where he wants to be. He's being taunted by these people, asking him where his God is. Look at... Look at verse 9, where at the end of the verse, he refers to the oppression of the enemy. So he's oppressed by enemies. And then look at verse 5. The ESV renders this, why are you cast down, O my soul? Uh, You get that again in verse 6, my soul is cast down. And again in verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? And then at the end of chapter 43 in verse 5, why are you cast down? Oh, my soul. The, if you're looking at the Holman Christian Standard Bible, um, doesn't it say, why are you depressed, oh, my soul? So, you know, the word depressed is in the Bible. It's interesting. So this is a guy who's exiled, he's taunted, he's oppressed by enemies, and he's depressed spiritually. This is a guy who's suffering. And in this, look at verse 1. He's thirsty. He, this is so instructive for us because what this guy is doing in response to his circumstances, he's, let's, let's think about what he's not doing. He's not concluding, my enemies have the right idea. And this God of Israel, he has just, where is he? I might as well give up on him. He's not doing that. Nor is he saying... Those idolaters, they got the right idea. I'm just going to seek to manipulate the gods, the powers of the heavens, and see if they can't help me since the God of the Bible won't. He's not doing that. Nor is he saying something like this. Well, if God won't help me, I'm going to seek some some form of sinful comfort. I I, I can be satisfied in a sinful way. He's, He's... In other words, he's not joining his enemies, he's not committing idolatry, and he's not resorting to sinful sources of comfort. Look at what he's doing in verse 1. He says, As as a deer pants for flowing streams, so so pants my soul for you, O God. This this word that, that is used to describe the deer panting for flowing streams, it's used over in the book of Joel to describe animals who who are panting in the midst of a drought. So this is an animal. Maybe you've seen a dog or a, uh, some other animal when it's thirsty and, and it's panting and it desperately needs water. And this is the image that this guy is using to describe himself. He's, he's exiled, he's taunted, he's oppressed, he's depressed. And what he recognizes that he needs is God. 
I am panting for you, Lord. This in itself. So, so much about the way that this psalmist responds to his circumstances and, in, and his emotions is going to be instructive for us. And this is the most important thing that you should hear this morning, is that what we need when we are needy is God. Um, this, 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 these two psalms are written from the perspective of, of somebody who formerly worshipped the Lord in Jerusalem, as we'll see uh, just, just in just a moment. So this is somebody who has experienced God's goodness. And in particular, this is someone who has experienced God's goodness in public worship, which is interesting. This is, this is not somebody who's crying out for a private uh, sort of unique revelation of God. No, what he wants is something like what we're experiencing here this morning. He wants to be able to rejoin God's people and, and celebrate with them God's goodness. So, so he says it again in verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. What, what's evident here is that this psalmist recognizes that what he needs to satisfy his thirst in his soul is God. He knows that the longings in his heart cry out to be watered from an infinite reservoir. My family thinks I'm crazy, but there are certain foods that I could eat a lot of and not be full, you know, not be satisfied. So hot dogs are not filling, uh, pasta is not filling, and soup is not filling. If I eat that for lunch, I'm going to need a snack at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. What the psalmist is recognizing here is that food that isn't filling will not satisfy him. He wants to be satisfied. He wants to be filled. And so he's not resorting to anything other than God. This, this dynamic that we see at work in this psalm, it works at the level of what we love and what we find pleasure in. God created us to be pleased by things that he means for us to enjoy as he has instructed us to enjoy them. If we try to enjoy one of God's blessings but refuse to follow God's instructions, you know what's going to happen? That blessing, is that, that thing that God meant for your good is going to rise up and stand over you and become a slave master. And you are going to find yourself under a harsh yoke. And, and the psalmist is not resorting to some form of pleasure outside of God's instructions. He wants God because he knows that only God can satisfy his yearnings. He says here in verse 2, When shall I come and appear before God. This is one of the first of several indications that, that what he wants is to be able to go up to Jerusalem at the temple and worship the Lord in accordance with the instructions that Moses gave to Israel. He wants to do what the Bible has commanded. And so all the males in Israel were to appear before the Lord three times at these three key feasts in, in, in the scope, in the, in the span of the year. That's what he wants to do. He wants to be able to go to Jerusalem and appear before the Lord for one of these feasts. But he can't. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. He wants God and all he has is his own weeping. 
So this is someone who's he's reaching out and groping for God and all he has for consolation is his own sadness and sorrow. While enemies say to him all the day long, where is your God? The fact that these enemies have prevailed, maybe you've, as you've read the Bible, maybe you, you remember the way that when uh, Saul was killed, Saul was the king of Israel, and was, when he was killed, um, the Philistines, they sent news back to their cities to proclaim the good news. And, and the good news for the Philistines, the way they thought about things, was that their God had triumphed over Israel's God. And the proof of that was Saul, the king of Israel, is dead. And we were, we were at battle, at war with them. So these enemies of the people of God are saying to this, this faithful Israelite, we've triumphed over your God. Where is your God? And the only thing that he can do in response is weep. There's a depth of emotion that's on display here. As as he's crying, he's weeping day and night. I, I would suggest to you that there is also a heroic suffering on display here. What I mean by heroic is he's not capitulating. He's not capitulating and he's not giving way to temptation to sin. And, and that steadfastness under trial is, this is why we honor and, and respect people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Because when it looked like evil was going to prevail, he refused to go with the program. He refused to say, well, I guess Hitler and the Nazis are going to come through and win. He refused to go along with that. He stayed faithful, and even though he died, Resisting Hitler, we regard his suffering as heroic. And I would submit to you that if you're suffering emotionally, the the Lord may not change your emotions. The Lord may not fix your circumstances. But if you will stay faithful, if if you'll do what this psalmist is doing here, that heroism, you'll partake of it. You know what else happens? You say to the world... I believe that my God is good. I believe that my God is wise. I believe that my God is able. And all of that glorifies him. Because the world looks at you and they say, well, there's no evidence of that in your life. And you say, no, but I know it to be so. And they, they're, only, they're, they're forced to conclude, something must have convinced you of these things. And that glorifies the Lord. In the midst of his thirsty longing and weeping that we see in verses 1 through 3, look at what he's doing in verse 4. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. So he's, he's pouring out his soul in prayer, isn't he? He's panting for the Lord. He's thirsting for God. And as he pours out his soul in prayer, look at what he says there in verse 4. I remember how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. That reference to keeping festival means he used to do what Israel would do on the feast days. He would join with the crowd. Maybe he was a leader in the crowd. The, the, the sons of Korah, uh, they, these are the men whom David uh, put in charge of the, the service of song at the the house of God after the ark rested there. And, and so, 
So maybe this is one of the guys who used to lead in worship there in Jerusalem. And now for whatever reason, he's been removed from Jerusalem. And he's thinking back on the way things were when all was right with the world. Maybe he participated in that grand worship celebration when the ark was brought into Jerusalem and and caused to rest there. And, And you can read about that over in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Whatever the case, this seems to have been the high point for him. That festal procession, being with this throng of people. Everyone who shares his view of the world, his approach to life, his values. And he's lifting his voice up with them in celebration of the great king. As the Bible tells them to do. And he's in Jerusalem, the city of God. And if that's the high point, the low point is where he is now. Far from Jerusalem, surrounded not by people of like mind, but by enemies. Not hearing voices of praise, but people taunting him. And what they're saying to him is, your God is absent. And all he has are these memories, these things I remember. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. I am so thankful for Kenwood Baptist Church. I am so thankful for the opportunity to worship here on such a regular basis. When I'm not here, I miss it. And I, I, I mean, Denny and I, we talk about this. Denny's traveling back, pray for him. He's traveling back from Canada this morning. And he says to me, I hate not being at Kenwood on Sundays. This is exactly what this psalmist is feeling. Memories of this time when you're with the people that you love, the people who think the way you think, Praising the God that you all adore together. And his reflections on the ways that he knows he ought to feel. Bring him to verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? You, You can hear his good theology in the question, can't you? You can hear him saying to himself, you know that God is sovereign. You know that God's in control. You know that God's going to make this right. And he knows that the way he feels in his soul doesn't correspond with the theology that he knows to be true. Why are you cast down on my soul? This is not the way you ought to feel. Look at the rest of the the next statement. Why are you in turmoil within me? Maybe, Maybe the anguish for you is not what the psalmist is feeling. Maybe you feel this way when you're trying to resist temptation. Maybe you feel this way when you're wrestling through whether or not you're going to submit your life to God. Maybe you feel this way when you know the right thing that you're being called to do and you're not so excited about doing it. But there's this, there's this angst. He's cast down and he's in turmoil. And then he admonishes himself. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him. You, you hear what he's saying there he's confessing he's confessing his faith he's saying i believe god's going to set things right i believe that god is going to reunite me with the people of god bring me home from this exiled place back to jerusalem and allow me another opportunity to praise god who is my salvation and my god so he he admonishes himself because he believes He believes that God is going to keep his promises. 
judge the wicked, save the righteous, and pervade the world with blessing. That's what the Bible promises God's going to do. The Bible promises that the God is going to saturate this world with his goodness. Cover the sea, cover the, the dry lands as the waters cover the seas with his glory. That's what he's going to do. He believes this. He believes that God's going to act on his behalf. But in verses 6 through 11, we see that this doesn't take the pain away. So he seems to have worked himself up to this resolution in verse 5, but verse 5 is going to become a refrain, and we're going to see it again in verse 11 and then again in chapter 43, verse 5. This this refrain joins Psalms 42 and 43 together. The fact that 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 statement is repeated, there's no superscription on on, uh, 43, and then there's another repetition from 42 to 43 that we'll see in just a second. So he's worked up to this resolution... But look at verse 6. My soul is cast down within me. You could could render this that his soul is sunken. And it still hasn't risen. His soul is sunk down. And this is the way that we all find life to work, isn't it? We we all experience this. I I mean, I, I, I trust that you have. You know the right things, and it doesn't alter the way that you feel. I think it's tremendously encouraging that somebody inspired by the Holy Spirit, the author of a psalm, is is articulating this. He had to work through this also. This tells us that arriving at the right answer and knowing theological truth, as this psalmist obviously does, it's not going to guarantee a change in your physical circumstances. Knowing, knowing the right theology doesn't make it where he's back in Jerusalem away from these enemies. It also tells us that it, it's not going to guarantee an emotional lift. I mean, if it does, praise God. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But if it doesn't, remember these psalms, Psalms 42 and 43, and remember the example of this psalmist. And, and, you know, I'm sure this psalmist, I, I, I'm confident that this psalmist thought this because of what we're going to see. One of, one of the things that we have to ask ourselves is, what's my alternative? What are my alternatives? If, if I'm not going to be faithful to the Lord, what am I going to look to for help when I find myself here? What does the psalmist do? He keeps right on praying. He's praying along. He he seems to come to a resolution in verse 5, but he gets through that. And in verse 6, he recognizes his soul is cast down within him, right where he was. And so he keeps right on praying. And what's remarkable here is that the Lord seems to meet him where he is. Look at what he says here in verse 6. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. This is where we have to go. This is what he's doing at the beginning, right? As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. This is where we have to go. This is really the only place we have to go. This psalmist is modeling for us 
how we must respond when the darkness doesn't lift and the circumstances don't change. He's still not in Jerusalem. He's still not with the festal throng. Instead, look at, look at where he is here, from the land of Jordan and from Hermon, from Mount Mizar, up, up near the uh, Sea of Galilee, up in, in, in the land of Israel, the Dead Sea is close to Jerusalem, which is kind of in the south. Then you've got the Jordan River, which flows out of the Sea of Galilee up in the north. And that's where the Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon is up there near Galilee. And uh, Mount Mizar might be a, a, a peak in the range of mountains that includes Mount Hermon. Um, and, and so he's, he, he appears to be in a rocky, uh, maybe mountainous place. And he, and he can apparently see the waters of the River Jordan. And it, it would appear that as he watches the Jordan River moving through this mountainous place, maybe boulders, maybe rapids, it would appear that he's reflecting on God's work in creation. Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. This is tantalizing because he doesn't specify what the deeps are. But maybe the depths of the waters... Are, are calling out and resonating with the depths of his own soul. Maybe he's, maybe he's looking at God's work in creation and, and seeing there that um, there, there's this boiling and, and booming and hissing and rolling and tossing water and this tumult in the waters as they move over these, these rocks and he's recognizing a correspondence to the way that he feels within his soul. And in the midst of this, he begins to contemplate God's power evidenced in creation. And, and I think what's comforting here is that even as he's suffering, he's conscious of the Lord. He says there in the rest of verse 7, All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Uh, this is quoted over in Jonah, the passage that, was, that, that Jeff read earlier. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This, this may be a recognition that, that God's justice is bringing upon him what he deserves because of his sin. If our emotions and our circumstances don't change when we've sought the Lord through the Bible and prayer, we can be tempted to think it doesn't work. And theology is not going to fix my problems. And I need something more than the Bible. I need maybe something more practical. I think that those conclusions, they short-circuit this process. And, and they fail to see that, that the, some quick, quick fix change of circumstances or, or some way to try to stimulate your emotions or try to make things better, that may not be what God wants for you. God may mean to bless us through long nights of yearning, even if those long nights continue for years. I, I, verse 7, I think, indicates that God met this psalmist in his pain and in his exile. And if we short-circuit the process, we could short-circuit the opportunity to meet the Lord in our pain. So it would seem that the uproar in the waters, their depths and their currents and their mysteries are, are, are resonating with the depths of his own soul and the currents and mysteries that he finds within himself. And that kind of pro thought process, 
I think, would lead to the assertion in verse 8, where it's almost like he's, he's able to lift his head up and say, by day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. The Lord commands his steadfast love. And, and notice, this is the instance of Lord here, the only one here at the beginning of the, this section of, of the Psalter. And, and it's personal, isn't it? Yahweh commands his steadfast love. He has, he has experienced God's goodness to him in the midst of his painful circumstances, in the midst of his depression. And he's talking about the way that God is, now, now ponder this with me, commanding his steadfast love. Commanding steadfast love. What does that mean? I think it means something like this. God has chosen that his loving kindness, his chesed, his steadfast love, God has chosen to so order the world that his grace and loving kindness are going to pervade his world because of who he is. So God is commanding his own character to be this way. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. It, it, it may indicate that when the psalmist sees the sunrise, he thinks of statements in the Bible that would indicate, like I'm thinking of places like Isaiah 9, or Isaiah, end of Isaiah 8, beginning of Isaiah 9, where he talks about how those who don't go to the, to the Bible, that for them, there will be no dawn. The sun is not going to rise in their lives. But instead, what they're going to ex experience is the gloom of thick darkness and anguish. And so the psalmist may be saying, you know what? The day itself testifies to me of God's steadfast love, God's trustworthiness, because the sun keeps rising. There's that great moment in the Chronicles of Narnia where they're down in this underground place, you know, and, and this wicked uh, power is saying... There is no outside world. There is no light. And, and one of the characters in the story says, the sun exists. The sun is. And it's, it's, it's this knowledge of reality that calls them out of the despair and out of the enchantment that this evil power is trying to work over them. No, the sun is out there. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And this seems to result in at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So he's, he's aware of God's steadfast love, and he's singing praise to God in the midst of all this pain and sorrow. His emotions aren't soaring. His enemies haven't gone away. His circumstances haven't changed. But he knows, he knows that God is a God of steadfast love. And then he cries out in verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Now, I, I mean, this is a surprising question, isn't it? Why have you? I think the psalmist knows. He hasn't forgotten me. But it feels like it. It feels like it, so he says it to the Lord. Why have you forgotten me? I would, you know, if you feel that way, pray that way. And I think what you'll find is that he'll come to you. And then he starts talking about his circumstances there in verse 9. Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression 
of the enemy. I, I would encourage you if, you, if you don't like your circumstances, talk to the Lord about them. Why is it this way for me, God? Now, if, if you embrace the faith of the Bible, we know that some of this stuff isn't going to change until Christ returns and makes all things new. But that doesn't mean it's wrong to ask the question. That doesn't mean it's not going to help you to work through the process and to ask the Lord why. This psalmist is not just accepting the way that things are. He's persevering. He wants things to be put right. And he's crying out to the one who can do it. And then the enemies repeat their question in verse 10. End of verse 10, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? First part of verse 10, I think what he's saying here when he says, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, I think this is what he means. When they say this to me, when they ask me, where is your God? It's like my bones are being shattered within me. It's killing me to hear them talk this way. And then he comes back to the refrain in verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He knows he shouldn't feel this way. So he's admonishing himself. He's still having to do this, you see. He's still having to say, hope in God. He's not, I don't think he's doing any better. He's still down. But he's believing the right things. He's believing the right things and he's persisting in believing them. Now, to this point, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. To this point, let's, let's survey what he's done here in Psalm 42. Verse 1, he's communicated his longing for God. Verses 2 through 5, he's remembering the way that he used to worship God. And then in verses uh, 6 and following, uh, particularly here in verses 7 and 8, he seems to be contemplating God's work in creation and, and experiencing, at some level, God's steadfast love. And now, and, and then he questions the Lord, why have you forgotten me? And now he starts making requests here in Psalm 43. His first request is in verse 1. Vindicate me, O God. What's that going to look like? Vindicate me is going to look like, I mean, literally what he says is judge me. Bring me into judgment. And then defend my cause against an ungodly people. I think what this is going to look like is these enemies that are taunting him, they're going to get defeated. And he's going to get liberated. And he's going to get brought back to Jerusalem where he can worship the Lord. That's what he's looking for. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. So he's not just saying, let's just make the best of it. Let's join up. He, he's, he's perverse. He, the, this leader, he's perverse. He's wicked. He's boorish. He's crude. But we might as well endorse him. No, he's not saying that, is he? He's saying, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For, and here, here is where he's repudiating idolatry, I think, in verse 2 of, of Psalm 43. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. I refuse to worship idols. I refuse to, to resort to other sources of comfort. You are my God. I'm taking refuge in you. And then here again, verse 2, why have you rejected me? And 
You know, I think we can imagine Job's counselors maybe saying to him at this point, you know God hasn't rejected you. And, and I think there's an appropriate time and place to say that to somebody. You know God has not rejected you. But that doesn't change the way this guy feels. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Now, here's his second request in verse 3. Now, notice how what he says there in verse 2, that's what he said in verse 9 of chapter 42. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? 42.9. 43.2, why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Tying these two psalms together. And then verse 3, here's what he wants. Send out your light. I think this is a connection back to the day. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. Send out your light. The prophets talk about how the morning star from on high is going to arise in Israel. Isaiah talked about how uh, there would be no gloom uh, for her who was in anguish uh, because uh, on those who dwell in Galilee, interestingly, on them a light has shone. And then somebody came saying, I am the light of the world. Send out your light and your truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. Now, you might say, oh, well, that's an interesting way to import Jesus into this psalm. Actually, I don't think I'm importing a messianic hope, a hope for the Davidic king into this psalm, because... I think that the fact that this is a psalm of the sons of Korah, a mosque of the sons of Korah, uh, links us back to that day when after the ark was brought into Jerusalem, David appointed, David, King David, appointed um, these sons of Korah to to oversee the the worship there at the house of the Lord. And then in this sequence, um, the defeat that seems to to have been suffered here in Psalms 42 and 43 is going to continue into Psalm 44, And then look at Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. So it's like he's looking forward to the king from David's line. And then in Psalm 46, I don't know if you've you've thought about that psalm, but it's like, you know, 46, um, 2, therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way and the mountains go into the sea. When's that going to happen, according to the Bible? At the end of all things, isn't it? And then there's this new city with a river running through it. It's almost like the, the eschatological city of God. And then in Psalms 47 through 49, there's this celebration of God's triumph. Who's going to bring about that celebration? According to the Bible, the king from David's line. I'm not importing Jesus into these psalms. Jesus is the one that these psalms are looking for. And when this psalmist says, send out your light and your truth, what he wants is God's power to come, and I think he's probably thinking, through the agency of the Davidic king, so that the enemies are defeated. Then he says there in verse 3, let them lead me. He wants to be brought home. Verse 3, let them bring me to your holy hill. The holy hill, that's where God uh, established the Messiah back in Psalm 2. Remember that? As for me, I have established my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he's he's thinking in terms of a hope for the future king from David's line. And he wants to be brought back to God's dwelling. Verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. 
and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. This is a gut check for us. Because what becomes evident here is that the reason that this guy is down is because he can't worship. What makes you down? What makes you depressed of soul? What makes you cast down in soul? Is it that you can't gather with the people of God to worship? Or is it because you've lost something else? What, you know, what do you put in that blank? If I don't have blank, I can identify with this psalmist. This psalmist is down because he desperately wants to go to Jerusalem, to go up to the temple, to sacrifice at the altar, to worship God, whom he calls my exceeding joy. What we want for you is for you to experience God as your exceeding joy. That's what we want for you. And if, if this is not the way you feel, I would just encourage you to cry out to the Lord this way. Cry out to the Lord, God, make yourself my exceeding joy. Make me somebody like the psalmist who if I, don't, if I lose everything, as long as I can worship you, it's okay. And even if I'm removed from the people of God and removed from a situation where I can't gather with your people to worship you, I'm still going to be crying out to you. And my main concern is going to be to know you and to walk with you and to praise you. If you're not here, uh, if you're not a believer here this morning, um, those of us who know God, this is the way we feel about him. There is nothing more important to us than God. There's nothing more satisfying to us than God. And, and we, want, we, want, we want to be like this psalmist, where if everything is taken from us, as long as we have the Lord, it's okay. And we want that for you. We want you to know God as your exceeding joy. And we would love to talk with you about how you can turn from all the stuff that's killing you and enslaving you and be reconciled to God by trusting Christ. And we would urge you to do that. The triumph that this psalmist is yearning for is still future when we get to the end of this uh, Psalm 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's still looking for it. He's still downcast. And this, psal this psalmist is modeling how believers should respond when the darkness doesn't lift. And, and we can enumerate the steps that he's taken. So if you want some action steps, if you want some practicality, I'm going to give you ten things right here that you can do. And this is coming right out of what this psalmist did. Uh, verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 42. He thirsted for God as the source of his satisfaction, implicitly rejecting all other comforts and allegiances. Hunger and thirst for the Lord. Number 2. Uh, from verse 4 of Psalm 42. These things I remember, how I would go. He remembered the joy he experienced in public worship. He's not looking for a private experience here. He wants public celebration of the Lord, and he remembered that. Number three, verse six, therefore I remember you, Psalm 42, six. He remembered God. Number four, he looked at creation, 
Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. He pondered God's work in creation, and then all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He considered God's justice. Number five, Psalm 42.8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. He is, he's recognizing God's steadfast love, and he's singing God pra- God's praises at night. Number six, he cried out to the Lord asking why. Verse 9 of Psalm 42, why do I go about, about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And then again, um, he, he asks uh, in, in Psalm 43, verse 2, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? So he's asking God, why? Number seven, he cried out to God for vindication. Psalm 43, 1, vindicate me, O God. Number eight, he asked God to send out his light and truth to lead him home. Psalm 43, 3. Number nine, he promised to worship God in accordance with the Bible's instructions. Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. We could go back at Leviticus and see how that's commanded. Number 10, he admonished himself repeatedly for his downcast state, and he urged himself to wait, to hope, to trust that he would again have the joy of worship. Um, Jesus, it's like Jesus has set in motion the salvation that this psalmist is looking for by his death and resurrection. But that salvation hasn't yet been consummated. It hasn't yet been brought fully to pass. And until it is, we will experience things like what's described here in Psalms 42 and 43. What we want to do is we want to follow the example of this psalmist. And, And I would... I would remind you that this is the way the people of God have had to live. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. There are going to be things that we're going to have to deal with until Christ comes and makes all things new. And then... James 5, James says in James 5.10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Have you thought about the fact that Job is a very long book? It's a long book. You've got like 40 chapters in there where he's getting no answer from God. I think one of the reasons it's so long is because that's the way life is sometimes. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so James is urging us to be steadfast, to persevere, just like this son of Korah is doing in Psalms 43 and 44. Jesus is going to come. And that king celebrated in Psalm 45, those words from, words from Psalm 45 are quoted in Hebrews 1. And that city that, that has a river running through it in, in Psalm 46 is the city that you see in Revelation 21 and 22. We want to be found faithful on that day. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that you would help us both when we go through this ourselves and when we, when we mourn with others who are going through it themselves. Lord, we pray that you'd make us compassionate. We pray that you'd make us good counselors. And we pray that you'd make us people who know you as our exceeding joy. Even when our circumstances are bad, even when emotionally we're down, Lord, be everything to us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.